introduce Dr. Kevin Harold. He's the CNH Long Professor of Immunobiology and Medicine and Endocrinology at Yale University. And his laboratory studies autoimmune diseases, whether they occur naturally or as a consequence of uh, immunomodulator uh, therapy. Sort of a perennial focus of the lab is type 1 diabetes, which uh, results from autoimmune destruction of the pancreas. And they're identifying immune cells responsible for attacking pancreatic islets, as well as studying how beta cells respond to these attacks. Um, and, you know, as most people also know, you have been instrumental in varying teplizumab uh, from its very beginning to the, um, the great news the other day uh, that it has been approved uh, by the FDA for um, treatment in um, those who have uh, who are eight years old and above who have uh, stage two diabetes. Um, <clears throat> so I wondered if you might just kind of give us a little backstory on uh, how you know, how teplizumab first came to your attention. And I believe that it was you and Jeff Bluestone in early in your career, right? Um, yeah. So, um, <clears throat> you know, when I was, when I was a postdoc um, in Frank Fitch's lab, I had gotten interested in um, identifying ways of modulating immune responses in vivo in, in people. Um, and at that time, the work that <clears throat> was going on involved the use of anti-CD4 and anti-CD8 antibodies. And one of the interesting observations was that this, the, the observations from Herman Waldman, which was that if you gave antigen under the umbrella of an anti-CD4 antibody, that you induce tolerance to that antigen. Um, so that was kind of interesting from an immunology point of view, but things kind of changed a bit when actually Jeff Bluestone came to the University of Chicago and he had been interested in anti-CD3 antibodies. And so we ended up collaborating. You know, there's a very, uh, to, to me, it's a very interesting story about a, um, you know, a, a typical Chicago evening. We had a, we had a, um, or his lab, his lab had a retreat at Grant Park. For those of you who've been in Chicago, you know where Grand Park is. And it was, you know, a winter night and it was so freaking cold, you couldn't even, you couldn't even go outside and skate. You know, they had a nice skating rink. So Jeff and I were inside and we ended up talking about this project. Um, and so that's how things uh, really got started. So I have to thank the lousy weather in Chicago uh, for getting this whole thing to go. Um, so, you know, eventually he had the drug made. By, he collaborated with, with folks at Johnson & Johnson that had humanized the molecule and rendered it FC receptor non-binding by the two alanine substitutions in the um, IgG1 molecule, um, the, the heavy uh, FC portion of the IgG1 molecule. Um, and um, around that time, Lucien Chateau had published a paper. We, we had done some work in low-dose strep diabetes, but Lucien had published a paper in nod mice. Um, we were just getting nod mice at that time. And she showed that you could treat the mice at the time that they presented with hyperglycemia and in fact, reverse the disease. So it, again, it brought up this idea and you didn't have to continuously treat. It brought up this idea of tolerance. Mm -hmm. which was what we were very, very interested in. Um, and then once Jeff had, uh, once this drug had been made, um, you know, uh, I basically wrote an IND to do it, do the trial. 
<clears throat> you'll, you'll know this is a long time ago because basically an investigator writes an IND and does a trial. So, <laughs> you know, it just doesn't happen anymore. Um, so that's what happened. And the first trial looked good. And then things kind of developed from there. Yeah. Um, and it kind of, it had a little bit of a bumpy road, correct? I mean, it was once, once these discoveries were made, you know, it was a little bit, uh, went into the back burner for a while. Well, I, I, I'm not sure I'd say it went to the back burner. I would say it was dead. Um, you know, what happened was the first trial that I did was um, successful. And then the ITN did a trial that seemed to be doing well. Um, and in the meantime, Macrogenics picked it up and was going to do a phase three trial in patients with new onset diabetes. But the endpoint that they, the primary endpoint that they selected was not a good one. Um, but probably one that frankly would have resulted in, in approval by the FDA, but not a, um, a clinically validated endpoint. So when that trial didn't meet that endpoint, Macrogenics bailed and so did Lilly, who was providing funds for the trial. So the, you know, the, the, the uh, it, it's interesting. It was a, now it became an orphan drug for an orphan indication. So, um, you know, pretty much I think we, uh, we as myself and Lucien Chateau and Jeff were, were searching for individuals who might pick this up. So we ended up talking to a lot of people. Uh, in the meantime, I had put in the proposal for the prevention trial uh, in TrialNet. Um, and after a few votes that finally moved forward. So at the time that we were getting the prevention trial, it was kind of in a bad situation because we had this trial moving forward in TrialNet, but no company that was basically behind it. So that was a precarious situation. Yeah, very precarious, but you still persevered, which is, you know, um, this is really exemplary. And then I think, um, you know, from there, prevention came onto the scene. We actually interviewed them in 2020 and they were kind of like, you know, a, a digital company. They really didn't even have a base. And from there, do you want to just sort of illustrate how that, uh, in a nutshell, progressed? Well, so they ended up uh, picking the drug up off of macrogenics. And then shortly afterwards, we got to the end point of the prevention trial that TrialNet was doing. Mm -hmm. And it turned out it was, you know, successful. Um, and uh, shortly afterwards, after the initial announcement of the results, they ended up, I guess, filing for um, a breakthrough designation by the FDA, and they got that. Um, and in addition, they filed for prime designation by the EMA. And then, you know, then Brexit happened. So then they filed for um, innovation passport, which is what the term is called in the UK now. And they got that. You know, the problem then became the drug, the, the original drug product that was made by Macrogenics was getting old. Yeah. And in fact, um, its expiration date was, um, uh, you know, last June. Yeah. Um, and so uh, Prevention Bio needed to make a new lot of drug. And then with some initial PK studies in healthy volunteers, the FDA wasn't satisfied with the uh, PK of the new drug um, compared to the old one. And that's where the complete response letter came in last July, July of 
2021. And so uh, after that, there was a fair amount of uh, additional work that went on in terms of study PK studies, PD studies, and so on. Eventually, that led to a kind of reconfiguration of what the dosing ought to be like. And so that's the uh, that that's where things finally got to. And so, you know, really, um, you know, the paper came out, the the scientific translational medicine paper, March 2021. That was Emily Sims as the first author. You were on it and others, uh, Ellis Long and Carla Greenbaum, et cetera. Um, you know, and that really, you know, that also dug into some of the mechanism, right? That, that some of the yeah. partially exhausted effector cells were associated with the clinical response. And then maybe that also helped kind of push things over the finish line. Would you agree? No, you know, actually, I think at, at I think the in terms of the FDA um, evaluation, Monica, I think what actually I mean, the mechanistic the mechanistic framework was important. I mean, clearly for discussion, and I think everyone felt better with some understanding of the mechanism. But I think really what what kind of provided the substantial data was that there was data from the phase three trial that uh, macrogenics had done from the original trial that I had done, and then the other trials that I had done, and they all were showing the same thing. All yeah. of the trials were showing that actually the drug would lead to retention of C peptide, and that was even true in the prevention trial. I mean, that that was in the uh, Sims paper. So it was a very consistent story across, um, you know, a, a, a more than a decade of of, of studies and many different uh, clinical settings. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, ultimately that's, you know, that's what really, um, you know, showed that it was safe enough and worth um, worth any of the side effects. I mean, truly, if you speak to anyone who has type one diabetes uh, or, or parent of a child uh, eight plus, right? It, getting, um, you know, a little extra time or or more, depending on, I guess, you know, their recovery or their re- remission, whatever you want to call it, is really valuable and worth it. You know, I think I wanted to ask your opinion, like, do you feel like this also opens the door to more exploration in further extending, you know, adding other drugs, perhaps, yeah, something absolutely. like that? Yeah. You know, I don't think, um, actually, I have a slide. Can I jump yes, to my slide? Our, yes, go to your slide. So, I mean, to, to your to your point in question, um, Monica, I think that's exactly right. I mean, this is just sort of the beginning of where we want to go. And the way I like to to look at it is um, uh, that if you um, take a, so the the data on the right is the um, data, at least as of last month, from individuals who are in the prevention trial. And you can see that there are some people who go way out. There's uh, uh, the first patient in the trial just developed, uh, was diagnosed with diabetes um, earlier this year. He had been out more than a decade from yeah. when he was first enrolled. And he, it's, you know, he was in um, uh, high school when, when he was enrolled and now he's grown up and he, you know, he's living in New York and everything on his own. So, you know, it, it, the, the time here has some real meaning in people's lives. Absolutely. But um, some of the people, like, again, as this graph shows, are doing extraordinarily well. Um, and, you know, I think the important thing is to understand why those individuals are doing so well. And I should just mention my own bias 
is that the story that we have about inducing exhaustion of T cells, CD8 positive T cells, I think is interesting in terms of the acute effects of the drug. I'm not sure that explains the long-term efficacy because those changes in T cells are gone after about a year of a single dose of drug. So I'm mm -hmm. not sure what's happening there. But the way I way I like to think about this is with those individuals, we're kind of where we were. Mm -hmm. 15 years ago in checkpoint therapy for treatments of cancer. And, you know, the if you take a look on the left is the, um, uh, you know, one of the earlier anti-CTLA-4 uh, papers um, in which, you know, not everybody responded, but there are some people had very, very good responses. And that was a change that was different than uh, had been before where melanoma, these are patients with melanoma, melanoma was a, you know, fairly rapidly lethal disease, but now all of a sudden there was some signal of a response. And then gradually over time, there's more that's added to this. So now we don't just give ipilimumab, we give nivolumab, you know, anti-PD-1, anti-PDL1 agents. And then, you know, the, the, the curve changes. And there is a greater proportion of individuals who are responding, and they're responding for much longer periods of time. So that's exactly um, where I, I, I think we are now, uh, just sort of at the beginning of, uh, um, you know, where, where we need to go. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we've had discussions with, you know, Sarah Richardson's groups and others um, regarding the existence of endotypes. How would you you know, do you feel that this is going to be an endotypal type of treatment, um, personalized medicine? I mean, you know, some people like even Mateus will say, don't bring that up because it's not a good business case. But, you know, it's it is something to consider. I mean, look at the example of breast cancer, right? At first it was one size fit all. Now it's very finely, you know, tuned um, for the treatment and and the market supports that. So can't we say that this might happen here as well? Well, it might be true. I'm not sure which the we could speculate a lot on the endotypes and potentially, you know, there are some data that suggests that there might be, for example, certain HLA types seem to be particularly uh, uh, benefit the most from the drug. Certain autoantibodies seem to identify uh, people who are most likely to respond. I think it's a little early to to draw a conclusion about that mm. because those ends start to become pretty small and they're not always reproducible across the trials. But there is there is one sort of, uh, endotype maybe isn't the right word, but one aspect of this that I do think is important, which is timing. So, you know, we've, we've done trials with dapluzumab in people at, at risk, with new onset diabetes, that's the ABATE trial here in the middle, and people who've had diabetes even for longer who still have residual beta cell function for they've been diagnosed with diabetes after uh, you know four to twelve months earlier, and you can sort of get the impression here, although it's not fair to compare the endpoints, that if anything the prevention is working a bit better. And new onset seems to work pretty well as well. But if you wait longer, it doesn't seem to work quite as well. So I actually do think there is a window of treatment opportunity when these, this type of a drug, at least, this type of an approach is going to work. Um, so, uh, you know, it could be that we could better define 
uh, an end type, but I think for sure we want to have some measure of uh, uh, you know auto react autoimmune activity to know when to intervene. Yeah, um, and so that'll be sort of next steps identifying you know that that window. Um, I wanted to, you know, we're we're kind of halfway through. I want to encourage people to add uh, questions into the chat, make this more like a conversation. And um, I did want to ask you, so when we're talking about, you know, this whole idea of the use of uh, T-zealed, I guess it's, it's being called, right? Um, how, is there an opportunity to use this in concert with eyelid implants, you know, sort of like the one that uh, the type that Vertex is developing? Yeah, um, you know, it's amazing, it's amazing, Monica, because you know all my slides and we didn't talk beforehand. <laughs> no. So I think that's exactly right. Um, that that's exactly what we ought to be doing, you know, creating um, beta cell replacements, um, perhaps conditioning, if, if, if that term's okay, conditioning a recipient with anti-CD3 and then putting in those beta cell replacements. Um, I guess my thought on this is that, um, you know, the drug would uh, stop the recurrent autoimmunity uh, if it was to occur with the beta cell replacement. But I would also point out that as an anti-CD3 antibody, it works very well uh, you know, even in sort of conventional settings, such as it, the, ori the original, original use of this drug was in um, patients who were receiving kidney or kidney pancreas transplants. Um, and it, there are studies from Bernard Herring about its use in patients who've gotten eyelid transplants. So I think it works there. Um, and I also think it works in terms of stemming autoimmunity. All right, that's good news. Um, I have a question from Peter Butler at uh, UCLA. Would you like to define, well, he said, congratulations, um, Kevin, would you like to define for clinical practice as to how we identify the patients for this uh, Rx? Yeah, so that's the challenge, Peter. You know, I, I, I um, the way TrialNet did it is uh, relatives were screened and then we found people who are double autoantibody positive and dysglycemic, and those are people eligible for the trial. I mean, you needed to have stage two diabetes, which includes both the immunologic markers and some sort of metabolic impairment. However, I do think it's time, and I, you know, I'm really glad I put these slides in here. Um, sorry, I do think it's time to start thinking about, should we screen the general population? Because, you know, this work from Minetta Ziegler on the left where she screened individuals in Bavaria, identified a number of uh, children who are auto even double autoantibody positive, and their rates of progression to diabetes are similar to relatives who are shown on the right over uh, the boxes a similar period of time. Um, so, you know, I think now that we have something to do about it, looking for individuals who may potentially benefit is a reasonable course. So you're thinking this is sort of just part of well baby checkups? Yeah, I mean, it could be well baby checkup. Yeah, yeah. why not, right? Right. I mean, I think- We screen know, for a lot of stuff. Yeah. It's less common than diabetes. Um, and less so dangerous. I, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I have a Dissio uh, Zurich from ULB. He has a question. Dissio, do you want to unmute? Hey, Kevin. Congratulations. Thank you. Finally approved. I have a, a question about patient selection because 
uh, there was, Monica was making this comparison with breast cancer, but in the case of targeted therapy in cancer, you have the opportunity to obtain tissue, look at gene expression, and then define which type of therapy I'm going to use. In the case of type one, we are limited to what is circulating in the blood. And I think this has been a little bit disappointing up to now. So you still have hope that by looking at circulating these cells or other markers, we can obtain uh, indications of which patient would benefit most. Um, unfortunately, I'm not sure that immunologic markers are going to be useful here. And, you know, we always get into this argument about it. And, and the argument usually ends up silencing the discussion by the point that, well, probably the, the T cells that you're interested in are in the eyelid. So, you know, that's the end of that discussion. On the other hand, you know, and, and, and I have to say, you know, my lab was very interested in developing ways of identifying beta cell killing in, in vivo, and that has not turned out to be a very useful approach to identifying who might be eligible. I mean, there are a number of reasons why I think that that type of an assay is, isn't particularly useful um, for screening individuals. Um, I, I would think, frankly, that... Um, Short of a some sort of a marker of beta cell killing, the best thing that we have right now is metabolic function, mm. unfortunately. Okay. Um, here's another question. Were there any changes, were there any microbiome markers uh, slash changes as a result of treatment? You know, microbiome is a big uh, place of inquiry in the context of autoimmunity and, and even now um, in type 1 diabetes, uh, people like Amaral Tinnis uh, over there in Boston College is, are, very, are digging into that. Yeah, that's a great question. And I really, really wish we knew the answer to that because I'm sure there's gold in there, but we don't know. And the only thing I can tell you is that we did some studies of uh, the same anti-CD3 antibody in humanized mice because, um, you know, and, and where we looked at that question. We had data from my lab and Richard Flavel's lab that the way, you know, this, this induction of an exhausted phenotype seemed to involve migration to the gut wall. And so the, um, the question came up, well, does the microbiome have anything to do with that? And the data we had from the humanized mice that we treated with antibiotics was absolutely it did. Because if you treated the mice with antibiotics, the anti-CD3 didn't work. So I think there's something really important there. That would be my guess. We don't have any data about this, unfortunately. Hmm, that's very interesting. We, we've invited um, a couple of representatives from Finch, um, which is a biotech um, a company that focuses on the microbiome and they have some interest in autoimmunity. So maybe they'll pursue that. Yeah, there might, there might be, there might be endotypes that can be defined in that way. Yeah. That's a really interesting idea. You know, when we talk about one sort of practical piece and uh, how are patients going to be able to afford this? I mean, we can see in the press releases that it's going to be quite expensive for the two week treatment, right? I know there's a COMPASS program in place to help patients get access with the patient assistance program, but what are your thoughts around that um, access to this? 
Yeah, you know, uh, Monica, I've had absolutely nothing to do with that. And, you know, I think that's probably good for the company that they um, don't ask my opinion. You know, I'd be giving it away. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm not in that business. I don't know what, I, I know what has been said about what it's going to cost. I don't know what, obviously people aren't going to pay that. Um, you know, we can get into a whole political discussion about what it should cost and so on, but um, I, I don't know. And, and I also don't know how you would compare it to costs of other biologics. So, Right. Yeah. I think it's right there in the same ballpark with other biologics. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as I've said, they have a program in place to help people gain access. So I think that's very promising. I have to say, you know, I, I, I should just mention the part of the reason I, I found that news, and it was news to me last week, upsetting, is because, you know, there there are many, you know, we, we've, we um, and, and I, I said this many times in my role in trial net, we, we, have, we have a very distorted bias in how we do clinical trials. And there are many underrepresented groups that don't participate in our trials and don't get access to this uh, you know, the developments from our research. So I, I think that's an area that needs that needs work. Yeah, agreed. Um, I would also wonder, you know, if uh, in terms of its, um, you know, extension um, into other groups, I mean, are there, are people starting, you know, other clinical trials sort of to piggyback on this? Are there conversations or is, is there anything tangible that's happening? What's the word on the street? Well, I can tell you in TrialNet, what we're interested in doing are a couple things. One is we'd like to do a, the, the company has to do a trial um, in uh, individuals under the age of eight. And in TrialNet, we're also very interested in that. So we're keen to start that trial. Um, you know, the, the, um, the immune repertoire of very young children is different than people who are in their mid-teens or 20s. Yeah. So I think, you know, how and whether the drug will work in younger individuals is an important biologic question to answer. The other thing is, you know, I, I emphasize this need to, uh, this thing about the window, but there are people who have stage one diabetes who don't have any metabolic impairments who appear to be progressing rapidly. And if we can identify those individuals, they may also benefit from this type of treatment. Need a lot more sort of boots on the ground in the laboratories and money to fund this, I would say. Yeah, one last thing, Monica, I should have brought it up. Um, the other thing is, and particularly since Tetio's on the call, one of the one of the the trials that I'm very excited about is to combine it with a as a, with a TIC2 inhibitor. Um, now, obviously, the TIC2 inhibitor has effects beyond just beta cells, but I, I do think, particularly in people who already have diabetes, combining those agents, uh, to me, makes sense. What do you think, Desio? I think it's a very good uh, idea. The other thing that I think would be interesting to consider is lifestyle intervention. I think there are data to suggest that a planet lifestyle intervention with physical uh, activity can protect pancreatic beta cells, especially against uh, endoplasmic reticulum stress. Well said. Well, it looks like Matthias von Herreth has joined us just for the very tail end. Matthias, would you like to contribute or 
have anything to jo- say? I know you're on vacation, so I appreciate you dialing in. Oh, I'm so sorry. I had it for, for 10.30. No worries. Um, well, we had a good discussion. We spoke about, you know, the uh, the advent of uh, the first a drug approved by the FDA for um, stopping progression to uh, stage three of type one diabetes. And um, we talked about the history of uh, teplizumab and, you know, sort of what's ahead. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Only combination therapy with uh, beta cell centric components, that would be nice. And it's, it's a great achievement that we have this now. It should be great for the whole field. That's short and sweet. How about that? I'm sorry, I thought it was an, an hour later. No Maybe worries. because of my travel and the time change, that's what happened. No, no worries um, at all. Um, I think someone else is saying, you know, microbiome response is fascinating. Could perhaps, could you perhaps integrate a microbiome screening into to preventative early childhood screenings to track changes over time? Hmm. Yeah, some, you know, screening kids from the beginning and looking for the way they progress and potentially endotypes would be, I think would inform the knowledge base for sure. Um, And um, thank you again for joining us, Kevin. It's just a phenomenal, um, you know, accomplishment to to get this to market. And I also think, you know, as as your comments showed, it really just uh, does take a village. Um, right. It really does. All different types of scientists working together and, uh, you know, interfacing with the FDA. Um, so uh, and that's no easy challenge. It's, it's incredibly challenging to get a drug like this to market and um, just hats off for all that contributed to that. So thank you again. And I hope you have a great rest of your day and a good Thanksgiving. Thank you very much.